Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Melissa Vosen Callens, who is the author of Ode to Gen X Institutional Cynicism in Stranger Things and 1980s Films. Melissa, thanks for being here with me today. Thanks for having me. I look forward to our conversation. Great. Could you start by um, talking a little bit about how this book came to be and why you wanted to sort of write about this ode to Gen X? Sure. So I'm a Gen Xer. Well, actually, I'm a Zennial, which is the micro generation between Gen X and Millennials. And I grew up with six Gen X siblings. So I very much was in a Gen X household. When I watched Stranger Things for the first time, I was really captivated with it. I really enjoyed searching for all the 1980s Easter eggs, particularly interested in how Stranger Things pays tribute to so many different 1980s films. So that really was the start of my book. Uh, After doing some research on Gen X, which I was somewhat familiar with because I identify as part of that generation. I decided specifically to take a look at how the 1980s films and Stranger Things represents Generation X. When we think of Gen X, or at least when I think of Gen X, one of the stereotypes that comes to mind is this idea of a cynical slacker. So I wanted to see how the films and Stranger Things depict Gen Xers as cynical, and in this case, leery of different institutions in our society. So there's a couple of things before we get into your book, I'd love for you to sort of talk about, define a little more. Um, I have to tell you, as being smack dab, solid in the middle of Gen X, (laughs) um, I appreciated, you know, so one of the things you do is kind of define Gen X. I appreciated how you um, talked about, I think it was a meme or whatever went around that forgot about us, forgot about Gen X. I was like, yes, I remember that. Um, So could you just start by giving us, you, you know, that definition of Gen X and thinking about that in the sort of in the larger study of looking at generations. Sure. So there are different years that people use to describe Gen X. Uh, But according to the Pew Research uh, Center, Generation X is 19, those born between 1965 and 1980. Uh, Of course, it's always important to remember if you're born at the very beginning or the very tail end of a generation, you might identify with the generation that uh, comes before yours or after yours. So when I mentioned that I was a zennial, I'm actually, according to the Pew Research Center, I'm actually a millennial. But many of the attributes of Gen X I identify with. And zennials are really interesting because it is this micro generation and it's filled with people who remember both the analog and the digital. We grew up during a time period of both. So that does put us in a really interesting space. Uh, that 
particular micro generation has often been referred to as the Oregon Trail generation because we played Oregon Trail or most of us played Oregon Trail in school. And I've also heard us referred to as the Jordan Catalano generation, which for those who are not familiar, Jordan Catalano was a character in the ABC TV series, My Soul Called Life played by Jared Leto and he kind of was I guess one of our one of our shining stars <laughs> um, so yeah that's that's uh, who belongs or who is said to be in the um, in the generation although as I said before the dates are loose and it's very likely that you might identify with different parts of a generation even though you're not part of it. And so um, thinking about sort of Stranger Things for the the few people out there who might not know about Stranger Things or maybe even kind of putting into context, especially now that um, it is coming to uh, an end, um, could you kind of talk a little bit or, or give us a little background history into Stranger Things and and maybe the um, you looked at some 80s films as well. Um, also, those films that you, you know, looked at how you sort of chose the films that you looked at as well. Sure. So for those who don't know, Stranger Things is a sci-fi horror series on Netflix created by Matt and Ross Duffer. They are brothers and they are part of the zennial micro generation. Uh, the series takes place in the 1980s in a fictitious town called Hawkins, Indiana, so small town America. Throughout all four seasons, we see a group of preteens and teenagers fight several evil entities that enter Hawkins through a world called the Upside Down. And early on in the series, the preteens and teenagers find out that this world is beneath theirs and it their town... Uh, to simplify is a portal. <laughs> so that's Stranger Things. And the Duffer brothers have openly said how they love 1980s film, particularly sci-fi and horror. So a lot of what they're doing is in Stranger Things is paying tribute to those particular films. So the films that I chose to analyze uh, it was hard. This was a really hard choice. I'll just say that right there. When I was watching Stranger Things, I saw so many parallels to so many different 1980s films and 1980s television series. So it became hard to narrow to narrow my data set down. I wanted to be more systematic than just simply picking out uh, different things that I had observed in the series. So I decided to analyze the top movies of the 1980s as determined by IMDb users, ranked according to number of votes. And that list is 30,000 titles. So of course, that is way too much for one person. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I decided to narrow that down and analyze films that fit within um, kind of Three, three areas. One, they have to be in the top 50 of that 30,000 title list. They have to prominently feature teenagers and young adults because Stranger Things does. And then they have to have at least a seven-star rating by users. So to me, that criteria worked really well because it really acknowledged the collaborative collective intelligence of the audience instead of just critic reviews. So if you're interested, and I imagine listeners probably are, the films that are discussed or the films that made that list are Gremlins, Big, Nightmare on Elm Street, Goonies, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, 
The Breakfast Club, Stand By Me, E.T. The Extraterrestrial, Dead Poet Society, Back to the Future 2, and then Back to the Future 1. <laughs> Which is a really oddly um, broad li- <laughs> list. I have to, I mean, there were some, when I ended up with this list, I was surprised with a few. I was really surprised to see gremlins on there, for example. Maybe others would would not be. And then there were some that I thought, I can't believe that's not on there. Some more like of the John Hughes films of the 19... 19- I know Breakfast Club is John Hughes, but I thought there might be others on there, but they weren't. Yes, I, I, I have to say I'm surprised that Back to the Future, like one and two, like one I get, but then we get into weird Back to the Futures, but that's a whole nother... Story. Uh, So when you were looking at these, what you really wanted to look at was these ideas of the family and the economy and this relationship with law and government that um, that that Gen Xers have. And so let's start with and, and you sort of split your chapters up around this. So we start with the family unit. And can you talk a little bit about what you started to see about Gen X and the family unit? Um, and how that was represented in these films and in Stranger Things. Sure. So I think to start, just to give you a brief overview of Gen X and the family before we move to talking about the the data set and Stranger Things. So Gen Xers, for the most part, grew up during a time when people were moving from the city to the suburbs. So that's important to note. They also grew up at a time where there were rising divorce rates, and they also had a status as latchkey kids. Now, not every Gen Xer was a latchkey kid, but many of them were. So basically what that is, for those who are unfamiliar, uh, latchkey kids are kids who came home after school and they were home alone. Both Both of their parents were likely in the workforce and they had to find something to do in those couple hours between school being finished and their parents coming home. As adults, uh, Gen Xers have actually found a sense of pride in starting and maintaining a stable family. Divorce rates are lower within Generation X. So they seem to seek to restore this institution. At the same time, they recognize that there's other ways to live. They don't necessarily privilege the nuclear family. They acknowledge that there are many different types of families. Uh, And I think what's also interesting, which relates a little bit more when we start talking about the economy, many Gen Xers now later in life, instead of downsizing, they're upsizing to accommodate adult children moving back home. And of course, that can be because of the economy, but also because they value uh, family life. So with all that said, what did I notice in the data set? Well, One thing that I thought was super interesting within the data set is we see a whole lot of familial dysfunction within these movies. We see a lot of tarnished nuclear family representations. We don't see a lot of representation of non-nuclear families. We just see one actually in ET. So to give you some ideas with the type of familial dysfunction I saw is Think about The Breakfast Club, if you're familiar with that movie. It's a bunch of teenagers who are sitting in detention for a whole host of different reasons. But when you think about it, every one of their reasons goes back to some type of 
familial dysfunction. So an example of that is Emilio Estevez's character. He is in detention and he's in detention because he engaged in an act of bullying. But when he talks about this act, he said that he did it to prove something to his father. So that speaks to familial dysfunction. Uh, Familial dysfunction was also in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, I'm thinking about Ferris here. His parents very much care, right? They're continually checking on him throughout the whole movie, but they're totally oblivious to what is going on. His friend Cameron uh, seems to have very apathetic parents, which is what's causing his kind of existential crisis throughout the entire movie. Uh, And we also see familial dysfunction in Stand By Me. In fact, we see a violent manifestation uh, of familial dysfunction in Stand By Me. When I compared that to Stranger Things, uh, what I noticed was that we saw a more robust representation of a non-nuclear family, and it was very much there to compare to a nuclear family. So the nuclear family in Stranger Things, Mike's family, by all outward appearances, they seem like a pretty great family and they have everything going for them. They're all sitting together at breakfast every single morning. The parents see the kids off to school or home there at night. But when you look deeper, you can see a very detached father, a mother who is also detached in some cases, apathetic in others. And season three, I think she's interested in the pool boy, <laughs> for example. So there's, there's, there's cracks in the facade. When that gets contrasted to the non-nuclear family, the sing- single mom, two children, there's a lot of chaos there in that household. The single mom is trying to make ends meet, is trying to make sure that she's there and present for her children. But we also see her understand her children just a whole lot more, <laughs> a whole lot more. Uh, and she is the reason for, not to give too much away if you haven't seen Stranger Things, but she is, without her, they would have never found her, her missing child. So it appears as though the Duffer brothers are trying to suggest that um, non-nuclear families uh, can sometimes be a better situation for the children. And that's not to say that they completely um, put down nuclear families. We do have a representation of a nuclear family within Stranger Things that also feels uh, like a good environment, and that would be Lucas's family. But that's the primary um, similarities and differences I was seeing between the data set and Stranger Things. And so we've got this, you know, you talk about the family unit. And one of the things you mentioned was that we see these families, sort of everybody moving back in, a lot of people moving back home, moving. um, And it sort of feeds into that discussion of what's happening with the American economy and what was happening in the 1980s. I mean, we see a lot of... um, and that kind of feeds into the government as well. Um, but can you, <laughs> you know, Ronald Reagan, every time I talk to anybody about the 80s, you know, Ronald Reagan and Reagan's economics just kind of weaves through it all. Um, but so can you talk a little bit then about the um, what you're seeing with like the Gen X and, and 1980s econ- American economy? And then we can move into talking about how we, you know, that happened in these films and Stranger Things? Sure. So Gen X grew up during a time of a widening 
income gap. And I feel like everything I'm about to say applies to current day too. Uh, So there was a widening income gap. And then there was the beginning of starting, like starting to question uh, whether or not the American dream had turned into the American myth. Was it actually possible to achieve? Gen Xers were also the first generation to be worse off than their parents from an economic standpoint. I often hear this currently, and people say millennials. And that makes me smile only in the sense that, as you mentioned before, Gen Xers are often forgotten. But actually, Gen Xers were the first, what a title to hold, (laughs) were the first generation (laughs) to do worse than their parents. Uh, They also grew up uh, in a time where college was becoming more of a more necessary, uh, but it didn't necessarily guarantee them success when they actually went and obtained their degree. Also, um, I think this is important to note with the 80s as it relates to the economy. Uh, As teens and adults, Gen Xers absolutely participated in something called conspicuous consumption, which was consumption for the idea of gaining some social power. And as teenagers, that, depending on their family situation, worked out okay because they achieved a certain level of affluence due to parental subsidies, or part-time jobs. But then some of that behavior followed them into adulthood, which was problematic and led to debt. Um, I would say adult Gen Xers have had to navigate a very volatile economy, including the 2008 Great Recession. Uh, It's been noted that they've bounced back a little better than some other generations simply because of where they were at in life. They were somewhat established, but they were far away from retirement where they could bounce back. But now, of course, there's possibly another looming recession when some Gen Xers, late Gen Xers, might be getting closer to thinking about retirement. Um, I do know that adult Gen Xers are generally pessimistic about retirement and if that is going to be a possibility. Uh, And it's something that has kind of been peppered throughout their life, uh, a distrust in the economy, distrust, I guess, as it relates to the government and uh, growing pessimism, pessimism in that regard. And so then how did you see, right? Like, yeah, it's, it, you know, I have to say in reading your book one, I am smack in the middle of Gen X, right? So all of this makes sense. But it is like you were saying, you start to see how it is we're coming back <laughs> to a lot of I'm like, oh, it's never going to end. Um, see my pessimism. Um, so how did you see this kind of playing out then in these 80s films you were looking at and that relationship with Stranger Things? One thing that I thought was interesting, as opposed to the representation of family and then later the representation of law, is that economy, the 1980s data set and Stranger Things were very similar. There weren't a whole lot of differences. Uh, Within the 1980s films, the data set, uh, there was definitely a focus on that widening income gap. One thing that was really noticeable Uh, is depictions between the haves and the have-nots. And I'm thinking about the Goonies here in particular. That's probably the crown jewel (laughs) of this particular theme. 
and for those who are not familiar with the Goonies, uh, uh, economic developers are threatening this quaint little neighborhood. They want to bulldoze it down and build a country club, which seems to be like the representation of 1980s wealth, although I'm not sure if it is anymore, but definitely in the 1980s. So the children in the movie have to go on a treasure hunt to try to get money to to save their neighborhood. Uh, so that evil developer trope is something that I think has always occurred in popular culture, but it really proliferated in the 1980s. We see it in Gremlins, although I don't know if many people remember this from Gremlins, but there's just this ongoing conversation in the Gremlins, how the bank wants to foreclose on all these different people. So that's within that movie. And then we also have in Back to the Future, at the very beginning, Doc talks about losing his family estate uh, because of failed inventions and he couldn't afford the property. And he ultimately loses it. And what's built there? A 1980s mall, (laughs) the Hill Valley Mall. So that's something that I saw throughout I think what's interesting when we look at Stranger Things, uh, we do see a lot of this widening income gap, and that's depicted between those two families, the the nuclear family and the non-nuclear family that I talked about before. But what's different is that there seems to be uh, a better relationship between the classes. So the children, for example, they're friends with one another, despite being part of different classes. We also see that there is a a romantic relationship between two classes. We see Nancy from the nuclear family who is well off and Jonathan who is from the non-nuclear family uh, who, you know, they struggle to make ends meet. So they do have this blossoming relationship And that's not to say that the Duffer brothers make it seem all rosy, though, because a lot of the problems, at least between Jonathan and Nancy, have to do with their socioeconomic classes. There's one moment where they both have a summer job at the newspaper and they lose it because they're not listening to what the boss wants them to do. And Nancy's like, "Eh, it's a summer job. No big deal. And Jonathan's like, hey, I need this summer job. I need the money. And I also need the opportunity that it affords. So that's one way in which I think Stranger Things is different. They have relationships, but they're also acknowledging the fact that there is some, um, you know, it can result in some some tension. Yeah, I think it's, it's really fascinating, too. I mean, and it speaks to the difference between film and television. But you think about how that plays out with relationships in The Breakfast Club, very much saying like, they're gone, right? Those two um, set those sets are not going to communicate after that Saturday, or the five of them are not going to talk after that Saturday, which is very different than how in Stranger Things, where they find connections and ways to endure those relationships. Absolutely. That's a really good example. We would like to think that, you know, they continued to be friends after they leave detention, but of course we know they won't. (laughs) (laughs) It's never going to happen. So we have this economy and then like all of this also. So the the third thing you kind of really focus on is, um, which I found really interesting was the law and government, right? And so can you talk a little bit first about the relationship for Gen Xers with law and government and, and how that and the importance or how that kind of plays out in Gen X and today. Yeah. So Gen X uh, grew up 
in a time of turmoil. There were a lot of scandals, a lot of tragedies. Think of different bombings, the space shuttle explosion. And young Gen Xers who were often latchkey kids, as I mentioned before, were constantly being inundated with safety warnings. We talk about how Gen Xers often were afforded this independence that children were not afford- are not afforded today. And I do agree with that. But also, this was the start of the time of safety warnings, stranger danger, say no to drugs. Uh, for those who are latchkey kids and are listening, you probably had some sort of an agreement with your parents not to open the door, that the parents might call and let the phone ring a certain amount of times to know it's them. So it was definitely kind of the rise of these safety warnings. And interestingly enough, during this time, pop culture also featured a lot of movies that featured uh, vigilante justice. So it really just all emphasized the fact that authorities might not be there for you if you need them, right? There's a lot of danger out there, including dangers even in the suburbs, and it's important to be vigilant. And I will also note that for Gen X of color, this wasn't just simply about authorities not being there for them. The authorities might be there and might be the source of the, the trouble, As adults, Gen Xers have continued to be leery of both the government and when we talk about authority, like the police. But I will also say that, you know, they're part of these institutions as well. Many work in law, many work in the government. But one of the things that I've noted through my research is even though they're part of these and trying to change them within the roles that they do, there still is this deep cynicism or skepticism maybe is probably the best way to to describe it right and you i mean as i was thinking about you know the films you talk about in stranger things there are so many examples of how this plays out um so i don't know if there's certain ones that you want to talk about um but like how you saw this kind of this relationship and, and this cynicism playing out yeah, so throughout the, the data set, there were a lot of depictions of police officers who are just downright dismissive of Gen X. And sometimes they're dismissive, and that's that. Sometimes they're dismissive to the point of it causing severe problems. So the gremlins, for example, when the gremlins towards the end of the movie, when they're completely terrorizing the town, the main teenager in the movie goes to the police asking for assistance. And the police were like, go home, open your Christmas presents. It's Christmas Eve. (laughs) Just completely dismissive. Uh, We also see police dismiss a Gen Xer in the Goonies, although that is the one example that I have to admit, I'm not sure if I would believe Chunk either. It's well established in the movie that he lies a lot. So I kind of, I'll give him a pass on that. Uh, And then the other one that a lot of people don't remember is um, in Ferris Bueller's Day Off when the principal breaks into the house and Jennifer Grey Uh, who plays Jeannie, goes to the police and wants to file a police report for the break-in. The police don't believe her. In fact, they want to charge her with filing a false police report. Uh, And then finally, I do want to mention Nightmare on Elm Street, because as I said before, Goonies was the jewel in the, the economy chapter. I would say Nightmare on Elm Street is the jewel in the 
the law chapter simply because the whole movie is based upon the breakdown of several different institutions. So Freddie was arrested at one point for murdering children. And these are absolutely horrific crimes, but he was acquitted on a technicality. So it was like an unsigned police warrant or something like that. I'm not sure if the reason ever made sense, but you know, it's the 1980s horror movie. And In addition to that, there were people within the legal system that were trying to profit from that case. So it really, the whole plot shows it's a failed system and that it is a broke, very much a broken institution that can lead to some very heinous, awful, awful things. Um, As far as Stranger Things goes, we see it's a little different. And I think we see this difference because we think of Gen Xers now. They're in the workforce. They are part of government. They are part of law. And they are trying to maybe change some of what they see as problematic. So we have distrust and authority in Stranger Things, but we do have a couple individuals that are really awesome and really help the children. The primary one being Sheriff Jim Hopper. And I think he works as an ally for the children simply because, you know, he's kind of an outcast himself. He's part of the local police force, but it's well established that he is not like the other law enforcement officials. He's had a very problematic and hard life. In fact, I'm watching season four right now and we learned that he was sent to Vietnam and he had to mix some of the Agent Orange chemicals and he felt lied to. So I think that works really well. Uh, he works really well as an ally to, to the children. And then we also have Dr. Owens, who is a scientist. He's problematic when we first meet him and what we would consider evil, but he flips. He helps Eleven get a birth certificate. In season four, I'm not done with it yet, but he's helping Eleven again um, save Hawkins and save the world. So we see those examples of problematic government agents, problematic police officers, but we also have a couple representations of awesome, awesome uh, agents as well. Right. And so, you know, so you've looked, you look at these sort of three areas and then you kind of end and wrap up with this um, Gen X as adults, right? That final chapter. And so can you talk a little bit um, about what you were also trying to bring in with, it's fascinating for me, I'll just say this, it's fascinating for me too, to watch. And and you talk about this to some of the people who I follow, like Winona Ryder, right? I mean, and other ones that I like watched (laughs) As, as young adults, um, and now they are playing parents in so many, like, tele- not only not only Stranger Things, but so many television shows and different things. So, like, can you talk a little bit about that sort of final chapter and looking at what's going on sort of today? Yeah, so in the final chapter, I wanted to take a look at what has happened to Gen X and what's happened in the world since those 1980s films were produced. Uh, and I've look specifically at three different movements that happened in this time period that Gen X has experienced and in some cases led. So that those were the Occupy Wall Street movement, the Me Too movement, and the Black Lives Matter movement. And my goal was to, to really look at how those movements and issues surrounding those 
particular movements may have shaped what we see in Stranger Things. One of the things that I think is really neat about this series that I'm not sure people widely know, but the Duffer Brothers, they do really listen to fans. And a great example of that is the first couple seasons, a lot of people said, you know, your female characters, they fall kind of short. (laughs) They don't have much agency or everything that they do is defined by their relationship to a male character. And it seems as though they really took that to heart uh, because in season three, we see more female characters and we see them take a greater role in, in saving Hawkins. And I'd like to think part of that has to do with what was going on at the time, the Me Too movement. Uh, as well as just listening to to fan feedback, which I'm sure was also influenced in part by the Me Too movement. Uh, another example is Lucas. He is the only, in season one at least, the only primary, primary character of color. And there was a lot of critique uh, that he was treated as the token Black friend. In se- season one, he doesn't really have much of a part at all. And we see throughout the series, we see him take on a greater role. In fact, he is really instrumental in season three to defeating the monster. And not only is he instrumental in defeating the monster, we see his little sister in season three, who is probably one of, I think, one of my favorite characters of the series. But we see her as well. Uh, So while... The Duffer Brothers certainly don't address systemic racism and what the Black Lives Matter movement brings to light. I would say they're not colorblind. They do, particularly in the later seasons, they are trying to address some of the stereotypes we see and some of the problems we see within pop culture. There's even one moment, season two or season three, but there's one moment where all the boys are dressed up as Ghostbusters. And and the comment is like, why and I can't remember their names, but everybody wants to be the lead. And the they, Lucas is like asked why he doesn't want to be the Ernie Hudson character, and he's like, why would I want to be the Ernie Hudson character? I want to be the character that you know makes like has makes a difference. And I think that speaks to speaks to what was problematic about Ghostbusters if you read about Ghostbusters and how that Ernie Hudson character was really watered down. Uh, so I find that interesting as well. That's chapter five. It speculates as to how some how these movements uh, may have impacted the Duffer Brothers, um, and thus, you know, Stranger Things and the interpretation of Stranger Things. I I will say I too think Lucas's little sister, who plays a great like in three and even in four, I've been watching, um, is like one of the greatest. Like she's just amazing <laughs> in so many ways. Um, but I do think, and and I think that. I really love her because we also get to see like a girl gamer, right? Like a diehard girl gamer and a, a, you know, a black girl gamer. And I have so many, I have students who just like that makes them so right. Because this is very much, you know, the gaming being the boy's world. And so her coming in and just, 
like telling them all where to go is kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah, I, I absolutely love her character. And I know we haven't got to see much of Susie, which is Dustin's girlfriend who lives across the country, but she's another great example of, uh, of a girl nerd. Uh, she helps, she plays a really important role in season three. And I suspect, again, not done with season four, but I suspect she's going to play a role too um, in, in season four. Mm-hmm. So we see all these. So, um, my usually my kind of last question is that question of like, are, is there anything else you're working on or something with this book? Like, what other is there anything else you want to sort of promote or throw out there? Sure, thanks. For, yeah, thanks for that question. <laughs> uh, I'm actually currently working on a book with my colleague Olivia Voigt, uh, and we are looking at the representation of gender and family in Seth MacFarlane's. Fox cartoons. So we're looking at Family Guy, uh, American Dad until it moved over to TBS, and then The Cleveland Show. So we're taking a look at how uh, the dads are represented, how the moms are represented, the children, and then also taking a a look at non-human characters. Uh, And that is still, it's, there's a rough draft, but I would suspect it won't be out until, uh, late 2023 through McFarland Publishing. Awesome. Um, so again, thank you, Melissa, for talking with me. This has been great. Um, I think for anybody who's into the 1980s <laughs> or lived through the 1980s, it's really fascinating and very timely now with um, Stranger Things coming to its fourth and final season and really being able to think about that and think about sort of how it's progressed through these um well, it's been seven, six, seven years now since it COVID throws well, a wrench in it I all. Was, I was wondering how <laughs> it would work because, you know, when you have a show with children, yeah. <laughs> they look very adult-like in season four. <laughs> I know. I was like, they've all grown up. <laughs> yes, definitely. But they've done a good job of it. Yes. Um, so again, this is Melissa Vosens Collins, who wrote Ode to Gen X, Institutional Cynicism in Stranger Things and 1980s Films. Thanks for talking with me for New Books and Popular Culture. Thanks, Rebecca.